have your Bibles, why don't you turn to uh, Hosea chapter 6, and uh, we're actually going to kind of back up a little bit into Hosea chapter 5 and kind of get the context. Um, Hosea chapter 6. Uh, if you need a Bible, you don't have one, you can raise your hand, we'll get you one. Anybody need a Bible? So, okay, good. Great. Um, you know, one of the things um, I asked Luke to do that one song, you know, it's your kindness, Lord, that leads to repentance. And, I, you know, that's God's heart towards each one of us. And we're going to see that. It's going to come abundantly clear as we look through this passage of Scripture, God's heart for His people. And, uh, you know, wouldn't it be nice to know what God's heart is regarding us, regarding life in general, uh, how, how He feels about things, what's, what God thinks well, as we look at this passage of Scripture, especially regarding when you and I backslide, when you and I sin, we're going to get a really good picture of how God views us during those times. Because I tell you what, the enemy will lie to you and tell you different, something different. And I want, I just, that's my prayer out of this whole message, is that you just understand and appreciate God's heart in all of this this morning. So picking it up at Hosea chapter 5, Verse 14 is the end of chapter 5. Uh, the Lord God is speaking to Israel uh, through the prophet Hosea, and he's mentioning Ephraim. Uh, Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom of, of Israel. So he says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a lo- young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue I will deliver again to my, excuse me, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And then last week, or two weeks ago, we jumped into chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, and it says, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the former, excuse me, like the latter and former rain to the earth. So here, um, and we really talked a lot about these verses, the first three in, in Hosea chapter 6, but here Hosea is calling the northern kingdom of Israel to repentance. And in those first three verses, there's a beautiful allusion to the coming of the Messiah. There, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. What a beautiful, just a, just kind of a hint of the coming Messiah who would die on the cross uh, and, and be dead for three days and then rise again on the third day. Um, but also, I believe, and I, we did go into detail about this before, but I also believe that, that those particular verses are prophesying the regathering of Israel together and the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter in his second epistle says, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And for two thousand years, or two millenniums, or two days in God's economy, Israel has been stricken. And after two days, or 2,000 years, or two millennium, however you want to look at it, when you look at it in that context, it says, He will revive us. You know that that actually has happened already. May 14, 1948, Jesus, God revived the nation of Israel 
after 2,000 years or after two days in God's economy. It says on the third day, he will raise us up on the third day or the third millennium. Now, if May 14, 1948 signaled the end of two days in God's economy, well, when is the third day? Well, how soon will it, uh, will it occur? Of course, none of us really know. But I will tell, tell you this. If the time that you and I are living in today could be considered a football game, I think we're in overtime right now. Um, if you were here Wednesday night, I showed a video clip. I was actually going to show it this morning, and I apologize I'm not. But if you were here, it's kind of a plug. Come Wednesday nights, and then you'll, you'll see things like that. Cool things happen on Wednesday nights. Um, but we showed a video um, about a red heifer that has been raised. It was born two years ago in, in uh, New Jersey, and it's, it's being raised right now, and it's two years old now. And now, after two years, now there's a bunch of rabbis coming from Israel to examine it to make sure that it's kosher, because if it's kosher, this, the, the owner of this, of this red heifer is going to give it to the state of Israel. They're going to fly it over to Israel. They're going to sacrifice it, and they're going to take the ashes of the red heifer, and, uh, and the red ashes of the red heifer are very significant because they're needed to cleanse the third temple. So I tell you what, we are so stinking close to the return of Jesus Christ. I mean, if that's close, how much closer is the rapture? I just, it's exciting for me. Um, so, uh, you know, like I said, I think we're in overtime right now, and pretty soon uh, that third millennium is going to be coming. Um, Jose's life uh, and ministry spanned the reign. Uh, basically, he started his ministry during the reign of King Jeroboam II. There was two kings named Jeroboam in Israel. Um, through the last six, uh, the reigns of the last six kings of Israel. And the period of time in the history of Israel is the time that Hosea is prophesying to them could also be, can, be compared to overtime. If, the, if you wanted to compare their history of Israel to a football game, they were, they were in overtime at the time of Hosea's prophecies. Judgment was coming. Uh, and, and if the northern kingdom was in overtime... The southern kingdom of Judah was beginning the two-minute warning. And the reason why I say that is because Judah's judgment would occur approximately about 100 years after Israel's. So just kind of gives you a perspective of time. Well, through Hosea, God was outlying Israel's unfaithfulness, and he's basically going to lay it out in these chapters here, but also pleading with them to repent and to turn back to him. And although Hosea was primarily a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, he also speaks a word of warning to the southern kingdom of Judah that they would suffer the same fate if they don't repent from their sins. So let's take a look at it. We'll pick it up here at verse 4. It says, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. And like the early dew, it goes away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like a light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Their faithfulness was compared to a morning cloud or an early dew, in the sense that it didn't last long and it dissipated quickly. Now, I grew up in California, in Northern California, and in 
California, at least where I grew up, in the summertime, very often in the mornings it was cooler and it was overcast. In the summertime in California, the best time to do your outdoor work is early in the morning. Get it done because as soon as that stuff burns off, it's going to get hot. And uh, and sure enough, you could pretty much pretty much like clockwork out there. Uh, you know, you would know if it was overcast in the morning if you just waited a few hours. That would burn off uh, by mid morning or definitely by noon. And you could usually depend on it just being hot the rest of the day. That, that's kind of was typical. You know, here in Minnesota, you know, you want the weather to change. Just wait like 15 minutes, and you, you get a 20 degree swing. Sometimes it's it's amazing how fast weather changes here. California's not that way. It's just it's hot. Smoggy, busy, crowded—you know, whatever you want to say—but it's just—it's just you can count on it. There, it's just that's the way it is. But well, it's pretty sad here that God compares their faithfulness to something that regularly and quickly dissipates. That's just a sad commentary on His people. He says, therefore I have hewn them, or another word for that is cut them, by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And then another translation, I think, and I'm reading out of the New King James, but another translation, I think, conveys that last part of that verse better. And my judgment goes forth as the light. In other words, God had spoken to the northern kingdom of Israel through prophets that he had raised up, Hosea being one of them, and it was to expose their sin. His word and his judgments, they're like light that brings light to those hidden things in the darkness. Have you ever wonder, you know, sometimes you think, you feel really good about yourself, and then you start reading the word of God, and you realize, man, I just, man, I don't measure up. And God's word exposes, exposes our uh, fickleness sometimes, our unfaithfulness. It exposes sin in our, our lives, and that's what God's word does. In fact, you know, it just reminds me of Hebrews 4.12 and 13. It says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so God has been speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel through his prophets, giving, you know, he's putting the, his words in their mouths. And they are basically, the words that they are sharing, the, the things that are, it's just exposing their sinfulness. It's bringing all those things hidden in the dark to light. And God says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You see, at this time, the people were still going through the outward motions of religious rituals. It's evident there in Hosea 5, verse 6, when, uh, when Hosea says, With their flocks and herds they, sh- they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn Himself from them. They were still going to, at least outwardly, worship the Lord. But God says, You're not going to find Me. Why? Because they were in sin. They weren't repentant. As He told them in chapter 4, verse 1, There is no truth... There's no mercy. There's no knowledge of God in the land. They had totally missed the heart of God. And God would rather have, the, have right hearts full of mercy and truth than hypocritical outward observances. And God's still that way. He'd still rather have your heart right with Him than rather than you go through the motions of just showing up at church or just doing this or doing that. He wants your heart. God would rather have us know Him and when, he, when, when we're speaking about the knowledge of God, what it really is talking about is being aware of His omnipresence. God is everywhere all the time. 
Anywhere I go, God's watching what I'm doing. It's just that awareness of God's presence. It's also just an awareness, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's having that reverent fear of Him. Not fear that He's going to crush us, but, you know, it's a kind of respect. Like, I respected my father when, he, when I was, you know, I, 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 he just, you know, he wasn't this cruel person at all. My dad was a great guy, but, but I respected him and I, I revered him. And I didn't want to, you know, smart off. I've never smarted off to my dad and stuff. I tried it a couple times with my mom. That didn't go over very well either. But, <laughs> but you know, you have that reverent fear. And that's, God wants that. He wants us to fear him. It's the fear of the Lord that keeps you and I from sinning. And he also wants us to understand his heart regarding our lives rather than just going through the outward hypocritical rituals that, that so many of us do so often. You know, Jesus quoted this verse twice in Matthew's gospel to the religious leaders of his day because they had also missed the heart of God. When your and my hearts are not right with the Lord, anything that you and I do outwardly, you know, religious rituals, whatever, it's meaningless to the Lord when our hearts aren't right with him. Verse 7, But like men, they transgress the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. Gilead is a study of evildoers and defiled with blood. As bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is no harl- uh, there is the harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. He speaks about Gilead. And Gilead was a region on the east side of the Jordan River. It's in modern-day Jordan today. That was where the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, as they were entering into the Promised Land, they didn't want to settle in the Promised Land. They said, hey, this place looks great for raising our sheep. And they had a lot of them. They said, this is prime real estate. We'd rather stay on this side of the Jordan than go across the Jordan. And uh, Moses said, well, you know, that would be a great sin and everything. And they said, no, 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 our men will go fight with you. But we want to leave our wives and our children and our livestock here on this side of the Jordan River. And Moses said, well, as long as you guys fight the battles with the rest of the children of Israel, then you can go back there. You won't be, you know, it's okay. You can do that. And so that's where those tribes uh, settled there on that side of the Jordan River. Rather than going into the Promised Land, they wanted to settle outside of it, uh, basically because it was prime real estate uh, for raising their sheep. And the chief city of Gilead, which is probably what is being referred to here, even though it doesn't say it by name, is probably Ramoth-Gilead. And the reason why I say that is because of the, just the context of the verses here. See, one of the cities that God had designated as a city for the priests of the tribe of Levi, you know, they didn't have their own tribal land. All the other tribes had, this is, their, this is the tribe of Reuben's land, this is the tribe of Naphtali's land. You know, they had their space, basically. But the tribe of Levi, the Levites, God says, I'm not giving you a single piece of land. You're going to have cities. You're going to be spread out throughout the land of Israel. And so one of the cities that God had designated as a city for the Levitical priests of the tribe of Levi was Ramoth-Gilead. And that also happened to be a city of refuge. And if you know what a city of refuge is, God had spread them out throughout the nation of Israel, and it was where an innocent manslayer, in other words, you killed someone by accident. You know, you were, you were cutting down a tree and your axe handle, you know, the axe head fell off and, and hit a guy in the head and he died. 
Well, if the Avenger of Blood, which was the next of kin, was after you because, you know, you killed my daddy, you know, or whatever, um, you could run to the city of refuge and you could go in there and you would find, a, you'd seek asylum there, basically. You'd be safe. You'd have sanctuary there in the uh, city of refuge. There the uh, avenger of blood couldn't come in to get you. And so God had set those up throughout the, the land of Israel. And so Ramoth Gilead was one of those cities. And what had originally been set aside by God as a place where a person could find mercy, where they could find you know, sanctuary, where they could find safety. Now, he says, that is a place of treachery. It says, God's servants, the priests, were now likened to a band of robbers lying in wait for innocent travelers on their way to Shechem. Now, Shechem is a very, very famous city in the Bible. It sits right between Mount Erbal and Mount Gerizim. And if you're familiar with that, that's the place where God gave the, the blessings and the cursings to the nation of Israel. I don't know if you remember that. It's, it's in the, uh, I think it's in the book of uh, Exodus, I believe, or it might be in Deuteronomy. It's, it's in the uh, Pentateuch. I'd just play it safe there. Um, but it was, the, it was right, set, right smack dab between the mountain of blessing and cursing. It's also where Jacob's well was. It's also where Joseph's bones were buried when they carried his bones back from Egypt. And today, it's the modern day city of Nablus in the Palestinian territory. So if you ever hear of Nablus in the news, that's where, uh, I think that's where Yasser Arafat used to live in Nablus. Well, that is Shechem, very famous city. Well, Shechem was also another Levite city of refuge. And the interesting thing about these cities of refuge, they were all one day's journey apart from each other. And the reason why God set, set that up is so that you would have one day to get to some place to find safety. Well, what he's talking about here is that here you've got these, these, these pilgrims in the land of Gilead. And they're going on their way to Shechem because from Ramoth, Gilead to Shechem, that's one day's trip. That would, the Shechem would be your next, it would be an obvious place where you would stop to, to spend the night you know, on your way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. It would just be the next logical stopping place. And what apparently was happening, evidently, was the priests there in Gilead, they were praying on the, not praying for, they were praying on the pilgrims that were on their way to Shechem to worship the Lord. And so those servants of God who were supposed to be ministering God's grace and God's mercy and and just ministering their representatives of God, they were murderers. And they were robbers ripping off people. Verse 11 says, Also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. Now, you know, in, in evangelical lingo today, harvest is a good word, right? There's churches named harvest, and there's, you know, there's speaking about the harvest of souls coming to the Lord. It's a good thing. Well, right here is not a good thing. Right here, harvest is not good. It's referring to the harvest of judgment. These people have sown to the wind, and now they're going to reap the whirlwind. It's speaking about harvesting, uh, you know, reaping basically what they've sown. And so God was also warning the southern kingdom of Judah through the prophet Hosea. And basically what he's saying is, Judah, a harvest of judgment is appointed for you. And he even tells them when. He says, when I return the captives of my people. That's kind of an interesting verse. What does that mean? Well, it could be, I'll just say could, it could be referring to Second Chronicles 28, verses 8 through 15. You don't have to turn there, but 
It could be referring to that time. That was the, the, the events that are described there in Second Chronicles 28 were before Hosea's time. In fact, just before Hosea's time. It was during the reign of Ahaz, king of uh, Judah. And it's interesting because Ahaz, it says in that Second Chronicles 28 that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fires. In other words, they had animal or child sacrifice. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. This guy was a very wicked king of Judah. And because of his sin, God delivered the nation of Judah into the hands of the king of Syria and Israel. And so the kings of Syria and Israel, they banded together, and they attacked Judah. And Israel, the northern kingdom, carried away 200,000 women and children of Judah captive. They were going to make them slaves. There was a prophet of the Lord in Israel named Oded. And he told them that because God was angry with the, with the nation of Judah, that's why God had delivered them into the kingdom of Israel's hands. God says that, you know, God basically told them you, he used you as his instrument of judgment against them. But he also warned them, he says, but you're going to do a greater sin if you keep these fellow Hebrews as slaves. Because God had all along said, you never, never enslave a fellow Hebrew. God had commanded that from the very beginning. And so what they would be doing would be a greater sin if they kept them as slaves. Well, long story short, the men of Israel heeded the words of Oded. They clothed, they fed, and in some cases they even carried the feeble who couldn't walk by themselves back to Judah, and they released them and returned back to Samaria. What, a, what, a, what a, just a, a great merciful thing that they did. God in His mercy and His kindness, He delivered those 200,000 from judgment. But God's mercy was supposed to be a lesson to the nation of Judah to repent. See, like I said, the kindness of the Lord leads to repentance. But they didn't repent. The nation of Judah continued in their rebellion, and God's message to them was, if you don't take advantage of my mercy and deliverance from judgment now, there's a greater judgment coming later. See, never mistake God's patience and His kindness, and in some cases, God's deliverance from the consequences of your sin, because God does that sometimes. Not that we deserve it, but sometimes God delivers us from the consequences of our sin. But never mistake that for God condoning your sin. Because He's not condoning your sin. He's patient. He's wanting you to repent from your sin. That's God's heart, is that we would turn to Him. God's heart towards you and I is not destruction, but repentance. Moving on to chapter 7. We'll try to finish the book of Hosea this morning. I'm just kidding. We're not. We're just going to. We got time. No, just kidding. Verse 1. When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, and the wickedness of Samaria. For they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. They make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. 
See, God was constantly working in the lives of the people of Israel. He was allowing them to suffer the consequences of their sin. He was allowing them to experience decline as a nation. Um, And God was doing that in order to get them to repent and to be healed. And there in verse 1 it says God would have healed them because God's heart was to heal them. But as soon as he would heal them, and as in the case of the men of Israel returning you know, the 200,000 captives back to Judah, more sin was discovered, more sin was uncovered. And the reason why is because they were just consistently bent on evil. They were so corrupt at this point. Verse 3 says, They make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. So it wasn't just the people of the kingdom of Israel. It was the kings of Israel. They were just as wicked, maybe even more so in many cases. And the kings not only committed sin, but they heartily condoned others who did. And Paul in Romans definitely has a warning about people that do that. Verse 4 says, They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by a baker. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. In the day of our king, princes have made him sick, inflamed with wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers. They prepare their heart like an oven while they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. They are all hot like an oven all and have devoured their judges. Their kings have fallen. None among them Calls upon me. So here the kingdom of Israel is likened to a baker's oven. Not only were they spiritual adulterers, but you know, the idolatry that they were doing, the, 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 the idolatrous practices that they were doing involved ritual prostitution. So they were not just spiritual adulterers, but they were physical adulterers as well. And God likens them to an oven that's heated by a baker. Now the baker, in this case, is probably referring to the first Jeroboam, the very first king of Israel, the son of Nebat. He was the one who introduced um, idol worship to the northern kingdom. It's like he kindled the flames in that oven. But once that oven was heated, the baker left it alone, and man, it burned by itself. It got hot all by itself. You know, the burning of an oven, man, it's a very apt picture of what occurs in the hearts of the sexually immoral. You know, the Bible, you know, talks about burning with lust. What, a, what an apt picture. The Bible warns you and I to flee from sexual immorality. Why? Well, fooling around with sexual immorality, you know, even in our thought life, even in, you know, innocent flirtations with the members of the opposite sex, you know, you're joking with someone at work or whatever, or coarse jokes with members of the opposite sex. It's like flicking matches into a dry field of, you know, unmowed hay on a windy day. I mean, you're just, you're just, you're just waiting. You're, you're going to get a fire. And once that fire starts, there's no putting it out. It's just, it's just an inferno. It's just a, it's a wildfire. It's impossible to put it out. Those of us that have been parents, or I'm still a parent, although I'm a grandparent now, but, you know, when our children were growing up, one of the things that we tried to stress to our kids is to stay sexually pure before marriage. Save yourself before marriage. Don't, and, and, and you know, as parents, sometimes you feel like you're just so heavy-handed on your kids. You try, to, you try to instill in them, you know, hey, you guys, don't even get in a situation where you're by yourselves and you're kissing and stuff because you're, you're just asking for trouble. Why? Well, because being physically active in a relationship before marriage, it's really like putting quarters in a Coke machine. 
It really is. You know, you put, you drop one quarter and there nothing happens. Hey, we can put another quarter and let's go a little further. And you go a little further. Two quarters in the, you know, in the Coke machine, nothing happens. And you think you can keep putting quarters in, but sooner or later you're going to drop that last quarter in and boom, there ain't nothing stopping that Coke bottle from coming out, you know. It's, you've, you've done that before. You know, last quarter is bing. You hear that, you hear that boom, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's the Coke can or a Coke bottle. That's what it is. When you and I, when when we are physically up on my slide, I thought it was a good analogy. <laughs> okay, I won't keep going on. You guys get you you get my point. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm embarrassed now. Um, verse five. Let's let's change the subject. No. <laughs> Verse 5, it says, In the day of our king, princes have made him sick, inflamed with wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers. Now, the day of our king, don't know exactly what that's referring to, but it's probably referring to maybe his birthday or possibly his inauguration. And basically what he's saying is they've, they've turned that, that celebration day into an excuse to get fallen down drunk. He says he stretched out his hand with scoffers. You know, the scoffer is a person that doesn't fear God and he doesn't regard man. That's what a scoffer is. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. I think there's no mistake that alcohol is mentioned along with adultery here in this passage of Scripture. Because drunkenness causes a person to throw off all self-restraint. It just lowers your inhibitions, basically. Jeremiah described the condition of both the people of Judah and Israel when he was a prophet. In Jeremiah 5, verse 7, he says, How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had had fed them to the full, they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. That's kind of a picturesque word, but basically they lined up at the door of the prostitutes. It says they were like well-fed, lusty stallions, one, every one neighed after his neighbor's wife. It's describing this culture where they are, they're both spiritually and physically adulterers, and it's just rampant among them. Verse 7 says, They are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. None among them calls upon me. So in all of this wickedness that we're speaking about, what's the Lord's heart toward His rebellious people? Man, that they would call upon Him. That's what God wanted. just want you to call upon me. Verse 8, Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. See, the people of, North, of the northern kingdom had so thoroughly mixed themselves with the pagans around them. They had mixed themselves through intermarriage, which God had warned the children of Israel not to do. Through adultery, through idolatry, they had just completely become one with their pagan neighbors all around them. There was no distinguishing between them. And now they're not only compared to the oven, but now they're compared to a cake that's put in the oven. A mixed cake that's put on the hot coals in the oven, but it's never turned over. 
One side would be burnt to a crisp, of course. The other side would be lukewarm and uncooked and it'd basically be ruined. It reminds me of what Elijah spoke to the children of Israel on Mount Carmel. He said, how long are you going to falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But you see, these people were so mixed with the nations around them. They had adopted the pagan practices of the Gentiles. And they had mixed that worship of Baals and other idols with the worship of the Lord. And in the eyes of the Lord, they were burnt to a crisp on one side. And they're lukewarm on the other side. It's like you're good for nothing. They were ruined and spoiled, good for nothing but to be vomited from his mouth. Just like that church in the book of Revelation, right? Just like that. Verse 9 says, Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. What this is picturing is really the sin. Sin is so deceptive. It sucks the life and the vitality out of the believer without the believer even realizing it's happening. You know, you hear the story about the frog being put in the, you know, in the warm water and it's slowly heated up. He doesn't realize that he's boiling to death sooner. You, know, you put him in the hot water, he'll jump out. Well, sin's that way. It's deceptive. And, and it, just, it, you just, it gets you on a path and you don't even realize that your vitality and your strength as a believer is just being sucked out of you. As believers, we need to be diligent to guard our hearts and our minds. You know, it's amazing how fast old age creeps up on us. Those of you that are older, like me, you, you realize that. One day, you know, you're, you, you think you're young, and then one day you look in the mirror and you go, wow, man, I've really aged. Especially when you look at old pictures, old photographs. That's a great way to get cheered up, right? Wow. <laughs> it's funny, though, how... You know, what this is picturing basically is, is men who are aging, but they think they're still young. It's like you, you don't realize you've got little gray hairs here and there. You've got wrinkles there and stuff. You know, it's funny. We used to go on a few uh, men's retreats with uh, this other Calvary Chapel, and it would be amazing. And there's one person here. I, I'm not going to name names. But it's amazing how on these men's retreats, these guys go out there and they p- start playing, like, football and stuff. And they think they still got it. You know, it's like, hey, man, I still, you know, and they go out there and, they, and it never failed on our men's retreats. Someone would get hurt because it's like you're not as young as you used to be. I'm not naming names, but. <laughs> well, one day we look in the mirror and we realize just how old we've become. You know, it's the same with sin. You know, the effects are quiet, but they continue on unnoticed. And it says here, and the pride of Israel testifies to his face. And yet they still don't know that they become weak. Remember when Delilah cut Samson's hair? Man, he had that strength. He was God's prophet. He was God's judge. Not God's prophet. He was God's judge. And yet, through compromise and through feeding his own flesh, he got to this point. He allowed Delilah to cut his hair. And then the Philistines fell upon him. And it says he went out as at other times to fight the Philistines. And he didn't know that his strength had left him. What a sad commentary. We need to guard our hearts against sin. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And in all this wickedness, what's the heart of God? Look at the second half of verse 10. But they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek Him for all of this. Verse 11 Ephraim also is like a silly dove without sense. 
They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. So now the imagery is of a silly dove without sense. Now, I don't know much about doves, so I guess they're silly, but this happened to be silly doves. And, uh, you know, I, all I have is this picture in my mind of this dove flying here and there, just kind of flitting around, um, not really going anywhere. And because of their sins, God is going to pull back his hand of protection. Their enemies would attack them. God's intent was to get them to repent. But instead, like silly doves (laughs) flitting about, they're going to fly off to Egypt. They're going to fly off to Assyria for deliverance. And that's exactly what happened. The children of Israel, the the kings of Israel, they would go to Assyria. for. They try to make allies with their enemies there. They would try to go to Egypt to get protection from Egypt. And God is basically saying, hey, you can run, but you can't hide. Jonah Perfect example. He found out the hard way too. How many of you and I have found that out? Trying to run from the Lord. And you know, God pursues us because He loves us. And praise God, He caught me. You know, Praise God, He caught you. Got a hold of us. And we're here today. You know, maybe through this message, God's nudging you here this morning. You know, maybe He's pursuing you and He's just trying to get your attention this morning. Well, he says to them, wherever they go, I'm going to spread my net on them. I'm going to chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. In other words, he to whom much is given, much will be required. And God had sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, warning them over and over and over again. They had heard much, but they would also be responsible for what they heard if they didn't repent. Verse 13, Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeem them, yet I have, yet they have spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. They assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebel against me. You know, I, I just have this picture in my mind of, of Hosea writing this. And tears are probably just rolling off his cheek and dropping onto his parchment, probably messing his writing up. You know, have you ever tried to write a letter or write something and you're crying? You ever tried? You know, you, you can't even see the words because the tears are just welling up in your eyes. Everything's like out of proportion and stuff. I imagine that's what's happening to Hosea as he's writing this, as he's expressing God's heart toward his people, because Hosea is probably thinking of Gomer. Because he had redeemed his wife, Gomer, from prostitution, and yet she returned to a life of prostitution. And he still loved her, and he was pursuing her. And so I, can, I just have this picture, as Hosea's, you know, God's speaking to Hosea, Hosea's writing these words, I can just imagine Hosea's just like, man, I totally get it, God. I understand how you feel towards your people who turn away from you. Verse 14, they did not cry out to me with their heart, when they wailed upon their beds. They assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebel against me. See, they were bearing the painful consequences of their sin. And they wailed because of it. In other words, they, translated means that they howled upon their beds because of their misery. And it says that they cried out to the Lord, and yet the Lord says, not with their heart. Why? Because it says then they assembled together for grain and new wine. In other words, they still turned to their pagan idols to deliver them from their misery. That's what it's talking about. 
crying, howling to the Lord, and yet still stubbornly clinging to their idol worship. God says, hey, you're not crying out with your heart. You're just crying out with your emotions. You're bummed that things are bad for you, but you're not crying out with your heart. What's the Lord's heart toward them? Man, that they would surrender fully to him, that they would cry out to him with their whole heart. Verse 15, though I disciplined and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the cursings of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. And so now Hosea finally here, he pictures them like a treacherous bow. A treacherous bow, you know, it's a, it's a weapon you're using out in battle and this stupid thing won't shoot straight. You know, it's, it's betraying you. You're, you're face to face with someone, you're going to try to fight them and, and your bow goes, shoots off that way. It's like, oh man, you, if it was me, I'd throw it down on the ground, you know. <laughs> I, anyways, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a bow that won't shoot straight. It can't be relied on in the thick of battle. The Lord said their princes were going to fall by the sword. And you know, I think all but one of the six kings of Israel that Hosea was, you know, during his lifetime, during his ministry, I think all but six of them, all but one of them of the six was assassinated. They all fell by the sword. And Egypt, whom they turned to help, uh, turned to for help, would deride them. Now, Egypt, throughout the Bible, is a picture of the, wor- of the world. And, you know, the world mocks and derides God's people when we fall. You ever notice how the media loves to lambast outspoken Christians when they fall from their, you know, they fall into sin? The media loves it, man. They have a field day with it. So, you know, going through these two chapters, I started kind of making a list of all the different sins that are mentioned in in these two chapters. And it's quite a list. It, I guess, I don't know if it's a dozen, but it definitely be the dirty dozen if it is. But in these two chapters, listen to, listen to the sins that God describes of these people. Unfaithfulness, covenant breaking, fraud, lying, scoffing, pride, spiritual adultery, physical adultery, murder, drunkenness, treachery, Cursing, having a divided heart, rebellion. I mean, this is quite a list of sins, isn't it? I mean, it's like, and they call themselves children of God. Look at all that, that stuff, that list of sin. These people are just as corrupt, if not worse, than the pagans around them. And they all deserve what the, whatever judgment God brings on them. They deserve it. And yet, look how many times God's heart is revealed in these two chapters. Chapter 6, verse 1, let us return to the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want you to know me. Chapter 7, verse 1, I would have healed them. Chapter 7, verse 7, call upon me. Verse 10, return to the Lord, seek him. Verse 14, cry out to me with all your heart. Verse 16, return to me. Do you, do you sense God's heart in there? It wasn't, you know, destruction. It was repentance. But, you know, sin deceives and it blinds us to our miserable, miserable condition. 
It's cruel, and it robs us of our vitality, and it's so deceptive, we don't even take notice of the condition of our hearts. We just start drifting off. And then on top of that, we have an enemy who accuses us and tells us, man, you've gone too far. Look at that list. Look at that list, man. You're, you're worse than your neighbors that aren't even believers down the street. You're worse than them. You're terrible. And the enemy accuses us and tells us we've gone too far. We've sinned too much. And you know what happens? We feel shame. We feel guilt and fear. And it keeps us from going to the Lord. We do just the, just the opposite of what God wants. God says, yeah, you, you are lousy. You are rotten. You are wicked. But man, I want you to turn to me. I want you to repent. Come back to me. I love you. You know, as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, you guys know that story. Crowds of people are putting put down palm branches, and they're, you know, it's it's a very happy occasion, right? The people are worshiping, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and just you know, the the, the rabbis or the 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 uh, Pharisees, they say, Hey, Master, tell your tell your followers to stop doing it. He goes, Well, if they stop, the rocks are going to cry out. I mean, it's just it's just it's just meant to happen. What a joyous time that is. We celebrate that as Palm Sunday, right? But you know what, always, what, what I never realized until I was studying this chapter was during that most festive time, Jesus starts weeping. I, I never connected those two things together. And yet, in Luke 19, verse 42, as Jesus is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, he starts weeping because they're blind and they're rebellious. And he says, if you had known... Even you, especially in this day, your day, the things that make for your peace. Man, the things that make for peace, there's one thing that makes for peace, and it's repentance. That's what makes peace. You're not going to have peace with God until you repent of your sins. And then surrendering our heart completely to Him. Well, we're, we're not done with Hosea, but we know from history that the nation of Israel, they didn't repent. They did go into captivity, and they did suffer horribly. And if anything out of these two chapters today, it's my prayer that you remember Hosea 6, and chapter 6 and chapter 7. Remember what God's heart is towards you, even when you and I fall into sin. Because God still loves you, and He's pursuing you. So why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, through the prophet Hosea, Lord, you've revealed to us this morning that you love us. Lord, that even when we've sinned, even when we've gone so far, even when we feel like we're worse than the worst sinner on the face of this planet, Lord God, there's still redemption available for us if we'll just repent of our sins, if we'll just turn back to you, Lord. That's what you desire for each one of us. And Lord, I know that there's many times when we fall into sin, Lord, I just pray that we would always remember this, this message, Lord God, that we would always remember your heart towards us, Father, that you love us. And we thank you for that reminder, Father. May we cling to those promises. May we cling to these scriptures. May we not get caught up in the lies of the enemy, Lord, that make us feel like we have to stay out of fellowship. We have to stay away from people. We're too ashamed of our sin, Lord. But may we come to you and just... Lay it all before you, Father. And so I just thank you for that reminder, Lord. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.